Well, good morning again. Glad you could gather with us to worship. We are in the Gospel of Luke. So if you have a Bible, turn there to Luke chapter 9 as I start. How can you know who Jesus is? How can you learn about Jesus and what he did while he was on earth? You can, you can read the polls to learn about Jesus. Every two years, Ligonier Ministries puts out a survey of the state of theology in America. And in 2020, they asked people, they try to get the word out, and ask a number of questions about who Jesus is and, and, and different points of theology. And they'd ask the question, do you agree or disagree? One of their questions was, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Do you agree or disagree? 52% agree with that statement. 36% disagree. Then they asked American evangelicals the same question, and 30% of evangelicals agreed with that statement. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 30% of church-going evangelicals. Another question, everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. 65% of Americans agree with this statement. Everyone sins a little, but most are good by nature. Whereas evangelicals had 47 agree that everyone sins a little, most are good. Now, evangelical can be a very broad term. So narrowing down this, and in their website allows you to do this, they found out at least, at least 10% of these are Bible-believing evangelicals who attend church at least once a week, who agree that everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. And yet Romans 3.23 says, fall of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. Then they asked, I found this fascinating, um, do you agree or disagree there will be a time when Jesus Christ returns to judge all people who have lived? And 41% of Americans agree with that statement. 41% of Americans believe that Jesus is coming back to judge all people. And I found that astounding. 41% know enough. They know judgment's coming, but it doesn't translate to salvation. Polls can be helpful to understand how people are thinking and processing life. Straw polls can be helpful. I'll ask a few here just to understand my audience. Straw poll, how many of you believe today Tom Brady will win his seventh Super Bowl? Okay. How many of you do not care about the Super Bowl? Wow. All right, one last question. How many of you believe the Detroit Lions will never make the Super Bowl? Polls can be helpful. They let me know that you know nothing about football. I've learned a lot. Do you know Jesus used polls? He has one in the passage this morning. Jesus asked the disciples at the end of our, uh, the passage, at the end of the time this morning, he says, who do the crowds say that I am? He's taking a poll, a straw poll. He's surveying the crowds. He wants to know from them, what do the crowds say about me? And then he, he turns in on the disciples to ask them. You know, one poll question that wasn't on Ligonier's site, and just and for the time frame, what we're going through here in Luke 9, I wonder one question would be helpful to ask, is Jesus your king? How many would respond positively? What if we ask this morning, don't raise your hands, just think, if I ask, is Jesus your king, was that, would that be an agreement or a disagreement? Hopefully, hopefully this morning through our time can narrow down some answers for you. 
as we see Jesus in, in a varied amount of situations here in this 20 verses. But here's my main idea. Here's what I want to convey in the two main points. And, and if you walk away with anything, just walk away with this statement. But this is the main idea. Kingdom servants joyfully submit their lives to the service and proclamation of the good news of a coming king because they find their sufficiency in him. I know that's a mouthful, but it's up on the screen there, so... Kingdom servants joyfully submit their lives to the service and proclamation of the good news of a coming king because they find their sufficiency in him. And so the, the outline is in that main idea, two points, kingdom servants and kingdom sufficiency. And so if you're helped by taking notes, make note of those as we walk through. There's also a couple questions, there's three in fact that I want to try to answer as we get through this first point, but who is the king? What is the kingdom and what's the message of the kingdom? And I think it'll become more clear, I hope, as we go through this passage. And so um, if you're new to us or if you're regular, just it, it'll help you to have your Bible open as we're going through this, looking uh, as we look at this passage. You will listen better. You will come away with some things to, to apply to your life, Lord willing. Um, but as you, if you're unfamiliar, we're looking at a Bible, and I, and I do bring this up because we do have new people, but we also have kids that are still learning, so I want kids to understand when they look at a Bible how to read it. The big numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers, and we're at Luke chapter 9, big number 9, starting at verse 1, and we'll read here through verse 20. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when they leave that town, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening and was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead and by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had arisen. And Herod said, John, I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On the return, the apostles told him all that they had done and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida, when the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he, Jesus, said to them, You give them something to eat. And he said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old had arisen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. 
Who is this about whom I hear such things? That's the question that King Herod asked earlier in the passage. And the answer given by the disciples who share their lives with Jesus was was this at the end of our, our reading, the Christ of God. Christ isn't a name. Jesus wasn't Mr. Christ. Christ is the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. It means anointed one. Jewish kings were anointed with oil, so the Christ was how Jesus referred to God's promised Savior King, the one they hope who would rescue God's people and put the world right. But how can we know that Jesus is the Messiah? In verses 7 through 9, Luke gives us three possible answers to the the question of Jesus' identity. Jesus could be John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Second, he could be Elijah. That may seem a little bit random to us, but the Bible says that Elijah was taken up to heaven in a chariot in 2 Kings 2. Elijah didn't die in the ordinary sense, and the Jews wondered that if he, he would come back to prepare the way for the Messiah. Or third, Jesus maybe was one of the prophets of old, they say in both answers. Moses had promised that one day a prophet like Moses would come. So, so maybe Jesus was the new Moses. And we get the, the same exact three options when Jesus asked the question to the disciples in verses 18 and 20. Did you notice that? A, a new John, a new Elijah, or a new Moses. And, and right in the middle of this reading is placed a story of feeding 5,000 people. Why? I asked that question a few times this week. But I think what makes the difference between Herod's unanswered question and Jesus' answer question is the meal in the wilderness. The meal gives us the answer of the question, who is this one? So here we go. And, and I'll just be honest, I struggled this week. I don't know if I was tired, I don't know what it is, but I struggled I was up late last night, still finishing. So I hope that you can glean something this morning from this morning, this sermon. If not, just glean something from the scriptures. Point number one, kingdom servants. You know, I said this a couple weeks ago. When we come to chapter nine, we come to a pivot in the story as Luke is writing this. Uh, Everything is gonna now turn towards Jerusalem as Jesus is going to to head to the cross now. And, And we find out later in this chapter, next week, Lord willing, we'll hear the first time that Jesus foretells, he teaches them that he's going to die. It's the first time that he'll say this. And and as I mentioned in my introduction, we're going to talk about a king and and a kingdom. And we see it in the text there. I just read it in Luke. So let me ask you, just as we start here to, to, to log this away in your mind, do you want to be king or do you want to be in the kingdom? Those are the only two options. You can't have one of each. Do you want to be king or do you want to be in the kingdom? I can ask another way. Do you, do you want freedom to do whatever you please with your life? Or do you want the freedom that only God can give when you submit your life to him? Or even another way. Do you want to be independent? Do you want to be the standard of truth, the decider of what is truth and what is not truth? Or do you want to be dependent on God who is truth? Who is the standard of truth? It's one of the things that this passage is talking about. It's a passage about the kingdom. And it ties so well into what we're going to celebrate at the end of the service, the Lord's Supper. There are two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And you can only belong to one kingdom. You're only one citizen of one kingdom. Only citizen of one. Only devoted to one. 
And so Luke starts here in, in chapter 9, verse 1, by, by Jesus calling his disciples, 12 together, and then sending them out. In the first six verses of the chapter, Jesus commissions his kingdom servants to go out and serve the kingdom. And he gives them power and authority over all demons, the, the ability to heal. And their job was, was to, to, to what in verse 2? To proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he says, don't bring anything with themselves, but just go. And if a town doesn't receive them, they're to shake off the dust from their feet. So my first question in the midst of all this is, who is the king? If they are kingdom servants on a mission, then who's the king? In verse 7, we learn about the earthly king they had, Herod, the Tetrarch. But he too is even asking, who is this one? And if a pagan earthly king is asking that question, Luke wants us to answer that same question. And the answer is right there in verse 1. Who is this king? The one who calls the 12 together and gives power and authority? Only a king can do this. And who is it in the Old Testament that calls and gives and sends? It's only God. God alone calls Israel out of Egypt and gives Israel promises and sends Israel into Egypt. God alone is the one who called Abram out of a pagan, idol-worshipping family in Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him enormous privileges and promises and then sent him in the land of promise. Only a king can do this. And what does the king instruct his disciples to do? Luke tells us that the twelve are brought together and they're called and they're commissioned and they're sent out with the power to heal and to proclaim. And this is meant to call us to remember what God did all throughout the Old Testament. God is the one who calls, who gives power and authority and sends, and this is now in Luke 9, God in the flesh. This is our king. Jesus is the king. Our king knew that his disciples would face opposition. Oh, they would went out to proclaim the kingdom and they would face those that would push back against this. Luke says in verse 5, and wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. This is a reference to Nehemiah 5.13. It says, I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may they be shaken out and emptied. Paul also used the same analogy in Acts 18.6. When they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. In ancient times, people carried their possessions in the fold of their garment. These were like pockets for them. And when you do laundry, or when my wife does laundry, you're supposed to shake out the clothes, right? Or get into the pockets to clear it out. What was once hidden is now revealed. And those who think they can deny the gospel and continue to hide, their denial will no longer stay in the dark, but they will be exposed. Jesus tells his disciples, shake off the dust. When they reject you, they ultimately are rejecting me. And friends, God will eventually move on from your continued refusal of him. He will shake off the dust of your unbelief and you will forever be separated from him as a judgment, as testimony against your disbelief. And listen, church, 
kingdom servants that preach and teach in the church won't always be there. If the church continues to salivate for teaching not found in the Bible, but to scratch their itching ears with conspiracy theories and worldly power, God's kingdom servants will shake off the dust from their feet as a testimony against them, and they won't stay. John the Baptist was one of those. He was one of those kingdom servants that left the scene. He faithfully proclaimed this coming kingdom. And how did the earthly king respond to John's preaching? He rejected it. And God removed John. Herod was possibly threatened by the popularity of Jesus. We read in Luke's gospel here that news had reached his palace and the kingdom might be threatened. Jesus wasn't a threat in the way that Herod thought he would be, but he was a greater threat to Herod's kingdom than Herod knew because Herod's kingdom was entirely of this world. But Jesus was here to proclaim a kingdom that is not of this world. That doesn't mean that Jesus' kingdom is irrelevant to this world, but that his kingdom is not derived from anything in this world that can give. It is utterly sovereign and over everything in this world. And what is the kingdom? See, God's kingdom doesn't have a territory that's protected by walls. It's not a city that's protected by water and warriors. No, this kingdom refers to the authority to rule and exercise of that rule. It's dynamic, in other words. It's not referring to a protected territory like that of Herod. You see, Herod had to protect his boundaries from enemies, but Jesus doesn't have that concern. It's his authority to rule and to exercise that rule over the hearts and lives of his people. And this was the message that the disciples were charged to go out and proclaim. Friend, there is another king that you must submit your entire life to, and it's not Herod, it's not the president, it's not the governor or mayor. This king has come, and he will set up his kingdom in your life, and he will not leave you, forsake you. He will take care of you. His king will supply all that we need, even the food that we eat, as we will see shortly. This king will do everything. And, and we, as kingdom servants, do not bring in the kingdom. No, this kingdom is entirely of God's doing. We contribute nothing to God's kingdom. That's why it's called the kingdom of God. It's his. It's not the kingdom of you and me. It's his kingdom. And the third question, what is the message of the kingdom? Well, because of the fall, Satan had tempted us to believe that there was a kingdom better than God's kingdom. If we only pursue our own joy, our own happiness, and our own satisfaction and fulfillment and love apart from God, and we believe that we would find more than we could ever find with God. And everyone who has ever lived has tried to live according to their own kingdom instead of the king of kings. And the message of the kingdom that Jesus sent his disciples out to proclaim is the gospel. We see it referenced here in, in verse 6. And they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. And friends, the gospel is that God in his grace and mercy has not left us to our own self-destruction, but that he himself has come in the flesh to rescue us from the dominion of darkness and the kingdom of Satan and the bondage of this passing age and to welcome us in by his grace to the everlasting kingdom of life and joy and light and love and hope and happiness. 
The gospel of the kingdom is the good news of God's liberation for us that we may enjoy him and live with him forever. Have you turned from trusting in your own failing and falling kingdom and submitted yourself to the true king of kings? This morning, friend, in God's kindness and patience with you, he brought you here to hear his word preached. A word that calls you to turn to Christ in faith and submission to his word. To turn from your sins and to trust in Christ. And Christians, this morning, we may sow the seed of the kingdom, we may proclaim the news of the kingdom, but we, we are not the ones that build the kingdom. The kingdom is God's deed, it's, it's not ours. We receive the kingdom, but we don't build it, it's, it's his kingdom. And people may refuse to enter the kingdom, but they can't destroy it. Nothing can stop God's kingdom. No political party, no ruler, no earthly king. God will win. It's all of God's doing. He makes it, he keeps it, he allows people to enter it, and he rules it. It's his. But Herod, Herod here is scared. He doesn't like this news. If you read Mark's gospel, you can see John the Baptist preached about God's kingdom to Herod, calling him to repent of his wickedness. But Herod refused. He would not enter God's kingdom. He was satisfied in his own kingdom. He was arrogant. You can read it here. John, I beheaded. There's no flinch to admit what he's done. He's not ashamed of it. He's proud of it. And Herod had heard the rumors. He hears of Jesus and doesn't understand who he is. And for him, his kingdom is threatened. Perhaps Herod is concerned that the people would switch their loyalties from him to Jesus. And friends, delusional leaders will do absolutely anything to fool their followers that their allegiance should be with them and them only. And Herod, Herod is concerned over this. It says in verse 9, Herod said, I, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. I find this fascinating, the language that Luke uses here. And he's writing, remember, a detailed account of Jesus. And then he leaves this little nugget for us. And then he doesn't come back to this, this thing. At the end of verse 9, he sought to see him. He doesn't come back to it until Luke chapter 23. So turn there. Look at Luke chapter 23. beginning of the chapter, Jesus is before Pilate, and skip down to verse 6. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean, and when they learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. Verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him. That's Luke's way of pointing us back to chapter 9, okay? There's connecting here. Because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. See, Herod had always been interested in Jesus. He's fascinated by Jesus. Jesus is famous, and he'd heard the news of Jesus' healing, and Jesus bringing people back to life. I mean, to Herod, Jesus was a star. It's like when you're on social media and a movie star responds to your comment. 
or you see someone and you're just kind of in awe of this person. For Herod, it was like, Jesus is here? He's a star. He's almost giddy to see Jesus. And look at verse 9. So he questioned him at some length, but Jesus made no answer. Chief priests and scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. See, in all this, Herod wanted Jesus in front of him, but he wanted him for himself. He wanted Jesus to dance, to, to give a show, to be entertaining to him. He wanted the benefits of Jesus. He wanted to see all of the power right in front. That's why he wanted Jesus. Friends, why do you come to church? Do you come to just check it off your list? Do you come because that's what you do? Do you come because of guilt or fear or compulsion? Do you come to church because of boredom? Perhaps you're in retirement and now you don't have much to do, so you come to church to have a little power, some control, some meaning. Or do you come because you love the Savior? Do you come to get something to satisfy you and not because of your love for the Savior? If you come for the same reasons that Herod has here, you'll be disappointed. You might find some meaning in church but it won't be found in Jesus. You might even find some friendships, but not the friendships that you really need. In verse 12 here in Luke 23, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that day. Before this, they had become an enmity with each other. Two enemies of God, of Jesus, found friendship in the company of Jesus but they didn't find friendship with Jesus. The word has a way of refining our motives and clearing the way forward. So I come back to the question that I asked earlier. Do you want to be king or do you want to be in the kingdom? Herod didn't want to be in the kingdom of God. He wanted to retain his kingdom. And he ended up losing both. Do you want to be king or do you want to be in the kingdom? Those are your only two options. There's only one king, and it's not me, and it's not you. It's Jesus. And when you're in his kingdom, you will never go without. There's always sufficiency. That leads to the second point here, kingdom sufficiency. And I love how providential this passage is for us this morning as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together in a few moments. So keep that thought in the back of your mind as we look at these verses. Turn back with me to Luke chapter 9. Look at verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to to a town called Bethsaida, and when the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. 
Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to him, to them, excuse me, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we were to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And he had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. See the sufficiency of Jesus and his kingdom. The disciples come back from their mission to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And they come now away with Jesus to the wilderness and the crowds follow. You don't have to search very long or hard to see why all four gospels give us the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. All of them give this same story. And really, it points us back to the feeding of the children of Israel in the wilderness during Moses' day. It also shows us the compassion and the care that Jesus has for the poor and the hungry. The language that Luke uses here is the same language Jesus uses later at the Passover meal when he shares with the disciples. And those that come with pressing needs to Jesus don't come as an interruption. No, that's the ministry. Jesus ministered to the woman with the hemorrhage who was interrupting Jesus' work. And here we read of the disciples returning from a mission and find themselves in the middle of another mission. And Jesus welcomes the people. He's never annoyed with those that seek him in faith. And instead of sending the people away to find food, Jesus tells the disciples to, to sit down and to feed them. But all they have is five loaves of bread and two fish. There isn't a subway nearby or a safe way to get some stuff. So how are they going to feed all these people? And they had seen Jesus heal many by this point. They had actually just returned from their own mission of healing and power that was orchestrated by Jesus. It's like standing before the Niagara Falls and saying, I'm thirsty. So why do they question Jesus? I believe it was simply because they saw with human eyes and their materialistic thinking crowded out their faith. And so they respond in unbelief. Jesus, it can't be done. We don't have the resources. See, in their kingdom, there is limited resources, but not in Jesus' kingdom. In Matthew's gospel, it indicates that the number didn't include, didn't include just men, but also women and children. So if that's the case, the number present at this event could have reached well over 15,000 people, maybe even as large as 20,000. So this incredibly large gathering of people there to listen to Jesus this has to be one of Jesus' most public miracles. And Jesus takes the five loaves and two small fish and gives thanks. A common Jewish form of thanksgiving would be this. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Jesus prays for something that is not there. Jesus gave thanks for something that was not there. So think about that the next time you're praying for what you need. Jesus prays in faith. He thanks God, knowing that God will supply what they need. And can you imagine the response of the crowd? Let's say there is 15,000 people there, and you're at 14,999 away from Jesus. 
you have no idea what's happening. Can you imagine what it would be like to stretch your neck to try to figure out what's going on? It's getting late, Jesus, and my kids are hungry. They're always hungry. And how are you going to feed all of us now? We've been out here for hours, listening, trying to to understand what you're teaching. We're trying to keep our kids occupied and quiet. And, And now they're serving food up there, and it doesn't look like it's enough. I've never been in a room with 15,000 people waiting for the meal to be served. And you just wonder the the fear and concern that there's not going to be enough for us back here. And then the disciples make their way through the crowd. They come back, it takes them a while, and they see baskets full of bread and fish. It's full, it's heavy. And they say, just take as much as you like. And you eat. And you, you eat like you've never eaten before. You know, you're just, your kids don't stop eating. And you eat until you're satisfied. You ever ate that way? I've never done this, but I've heard about it. You know, when you go to a cruise, they just have unlimited food and you just go until you make yourself sick, right? Is that what happens? Eat and eat until you're just satisfied. How is this possible? How could Jesus do this? I mean, everyone's astounded. Most of you have heard this story probably. It's well known. You've probably heard it more times than you can count. But we tend to forget how utterly amazing it must have been to be there, to see this. And the tense of the Greek verb indicates that Jesus kept breaking and breaking the bread. The more he broke it, the more there was for everyone to eat. Until every single person that was there was fully satisfied. Five loaves and two fish were multiplied to feed 5,000 people, probably more. And friends, this really happened. I feel like I have to keep saying that year after year. And maybe you need to write it in your Bible. This really happened. There's so many that want to question these things. Friends, this really happened. This is true. The other gospel writers give the same story. They were there. There were witnesses, a lot of them, to this miracle. So the the gospels give us four independent resources and the sources for this miracle. And remember also that that three of the four gospels written at the same time when the great number of witnesses who were possibly present could verify the authenticity of what happened. They're still living when this gospel was written. And they would forever remember this meal. And the disciples remember it too. And the crowd of 5,000 or more, we remember. This really happened, and Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. I found it fascinating, Jesus' words. I emphasize it when I read it a couple times. But Jesus, when they say it's getting late, they say to Jesus, and Jesus says, you give them something to eat. That's meant to bring their helplessness and human inability to the forefront. The you is emphatic. It's a command. Give to them, you, something to eat. And Jesus was being graciously aggressive. This was training for his disciples, all to bring more maturity to them. And friends, sometimes God calls us to hard tasks 
so that we will understand how inadequate we truly are. Just so we can turn to him and rely on his strength and not our own. That boss that you have that seems hard to please, God put him there to teach you to trust in God. The kids that you have in your home that confuse you all the time because you can't read their mind, God gave them to you to show you how utterly inadequate you are for the job of parenting and that you need to trust him. That spouse that is seemingly nothing like you and continues to frustrate you, God chose them for you to show you that you can't do it all on your own. And the cancer that comes into your life, God allowed this. He sent it so that you would rely on him and not your own strength. He wants us to turn to him. Did you notice that? When Jesus takes the loaves and the fish, Luke says he looked up to heaven. I found those five words incredibly comforting this week. Jesus didn't rely on himself. He looked to the heavens. He looked to his father. We can learn a lot from that this week. There is nothing God will not do to supply what you need. He will withhold nothing from you that is good for you. And the Savior is sufficient for anything you face, whether it's bereavement or a broken heart or loneliness or rejection or depression. God will continue to give. Well, we end here with the answer to the question that Herod had earlier. I'm going to dip into verses 18 through 20. I think I might come back to it next week, Lord willing. But he says, it's seemingly a new story that's happening here. It's kind of confusing as you read through it, but I think it answers the question. So it says in verse 18, now it happened that as he was praying alone, Jesus, the disciples were with him. And Jesus asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old had, has risen. And then he said to him, this is what I want you to, to key on. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. They knew enough then that Jesus was the Messiah. I mean, after all, they've seen the healings and the people coming to life. And now the massive crowd that's fed, fully satisfied with a couple fish and some loaves of bread, they knew he was the Messiah the long-awaited one who would come to rescue them from their sins. Who do you say Jesus is? This is the most important question that you will ever answer. It's a question between life and death. And I pray that you will understand this morning your life will be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for bringing us together this morning to sit under the preaching of your word. And we do pray that we would understand more clearly what it means to live in your kingdom. God, you're so good to us. The feeding of the 5,000 causes us to look forward to that great banquet where we will gather with many who have come before us. And we will gather to worship the lamb slain for our sakes. And we look forward to that great meal but until that day, Father, may we remember Jesus with every meal until then. You are our great provider, our Jehovah Jireh, 
And so help us, Father, to rest in you, to trust in you in the meantime. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.